Revelation chapter 8, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. John writes, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the gold, with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the heaven was, of the, excuse me, a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the star of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had it become made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, let's pray and ask God to, to bless this word to us and give us understanding into these things. Heavenly Father, once again we come to you. We thank you that you have given us your word to teach us who you are and the way of salvation through faith in Christ and how you would have us to live uh, and to teach us how to live this life uh, for you, trusting in your good purposes for us and even to teach us about prayer. We pray that you would teach us this morning by your spirit, work in us by your spirit and give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're coming up to here to chapter 8. Uh, and if you've been with us the whole time or if you've kind of been keeping up with the reading through the book of Revelation, uh, you know that we're, we're just now seeing the seventh seal on that scroll opened that we looked at uh, the scroll back in chapter 5 and 6. And so I thought maybe it might be helpful to give just a really brief review of the last few chapters to see where we are you know, when you go to the mall, sometimes you're looking for a store. They have that map at the beginning where you, know, you are here kind of thing, so you can figure out where you are in relation to where you're going. I thought it might be helpful to do that. Uh, Revelation 5, a few weeks ago or so, we looked at that, and the first thing we saw there was there was a scroll, a, seven, a, a scroll with seven seals on it, written on the, the front and the back, and it was in the hand of the one, the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And we saw at that time, what, what does that scroll represent? If you remember, it represents the decrees of God. It's the, it's the plan of God, his purposeful plan for all things, uh, especially for the salvation of his people uh, and the building up of his kingdom, his church. And then what was the, what was the issue in chapter 5? 
Nobody could open it. No one was worthy to open, to break those seals and open the scroll. There was a search. No one in heaven or on earth was able or found worthy to open it except one, the Lamb of God who had been slain. The Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Only the Lamb. That's, that's chapter five in a nutshell. Only the Lamb was worthy to open that scroll and break those seals. Well, we saw that start to happen in chapter six. In chapter six, you have the Lamb of God starting to break each of those seals one by one. And when he broke those seals, what happened? Well, things happened. Judgments of God were poured out on this world, uh, on this earth. And so what you had in chapter 6 is Jesus breaking the seals, opening the scroll, and the things written of in that scroll were were made to come to pass. And so what that vision in chapter 6, if you want to, you know, boil it down to its essence, is that it, it was in a symbolic form, in symbolic form, it was showing us the literal truth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, over all things. Even over the, the accomplishment of God's purposes in this world, in the breaking of those seals and opening that scroll. And so we saw at that time when we looked at that at chapter six was that Jesus opening the scroll was not just, it wasn't just about Jesus being able to see what was in the scroll. He was executing its contents. That's what he was worthy to do. He was worthy to open it and not just see it, but carry it out, make it come to pass. So all the things that you read about in chapter six, even those four horsemen of the apocalypse were a result of Jesus carrying out the will of God the Father in breaking those seals. And, and much of what was in those, that scroll that Jesus was carrying out and breaking those seals involved judgments on this world. Judgments upon the wicked in this life. That's what the four horsemen were uh, pictures of. War, violence, famine, pestilence, and disease. Those things, uh, those are judgments. Even as we read in, in Second Chronicles chapter 7, that God sends those things upon upon this world uh, as chastisements and judgments. In that chapter 6, we also read uh, what might have seemed like a strange picture to us, these the souls of the martyrs of the Lord uh, at, the, at the altar, uh, the cries of those martyrs to God. It says, those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne, the testimony they had borne to the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, they were, they were killed for it. And so this, in this vision, you have the souls of those martyrs crying out to God to make things right, crying out to God to avenge their blood. That might make us seem a little uncomfortable, you know, reading that, but that's what they were crying out to God to do, and with good reason. And, and what was God's answer to them? I said this before, but did, did God say, no, no, you've got the wrong idea. Uh, I, don't, I don't do things like that anymore. No, he said to wait. He told them to, quote, rest a little while long, rest a little longer, verse 11. In other words, rest until the appointed time. God has appointed a day for judgment, and he told them to wait until that time. Incidentally, in our chapter, in chapter 8, we are seeing God's answer to that prayer. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 10, they asked that God would judge, quote, those who dwell on the earth, avenge their blood on those who dwell on the earth. In our, in our chapter The very last verse, chapter 8, verse 13, who is being judged? Those who dwell on the earth. Same group of people. The wicked who are persecuting God's people. Uh, That answer to that prayer in chapter 6 finds it. uh, We find that here in chapter 8. Now, make no mistake, the book of Revelation, among other things and among other books, teaches us in, in no uncertain terms that God has appointed a day on which he will judge 
the heavens and the earth. He will judge the living and the dead as we confess in the Apostles' Creed. And, and he will not delay it. It may feel like it's being delayed, like it's taking a long time. Remember the, those saints at the throne, what did they say? How long? It seemed like a long wait. It may seem like a long wait, but God will do things in his time. Well, the last, the previous chapter, chapter 7, uh, if, if you were here, you saw that it was kind of an intermission between chapter 6 and chapter 8. Chapter 6, Jesus, the Lamb of God, breaks six of the seals, and things start happening, and then what happens? There's a pause in chapter 7. Chapter 7 uh, gives us uh, a vision uh, for, to John um, of, of two things. That intermission had a, had a twofold, at least, purpose. And the first purpose was it was to show and assure believers of the security of our salvation in Christ. That was the picture of the sealing, uh, of, with the seal of the living God of that 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. It's, it's a, a seal of their safety, of their security and their salvation. In other words, it, what, what it's teaching is what Paul says in Romans, nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what that seal, the Holy Spirit has sealed us, the Bible says, for the day of redemption. The second thing chapter 7's vision was intended to teach us was, remember that vision of that great multitude in heaven that no one could count from every nation, tribe, tongue, and, and place, and people? Uh, it's, it's telling us that Jesus Christ, no matter how things might look, and sometimes it doesn't look good, no matter how things may look, what did Jesus promise in Matthew sixteen eighteen? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall what? Shall not prevail against it. Sometimes it doesn't look like Jesus is building his church. But what, what is he doing? Revelation teaches us that in chapter 7, there's going to be a multitude in heaven one day that no one except God can count. That God's promise to Abraham, remember he said, go outside, look up at the stars, I'm paraphrasing. And if you can count the stars, if you can number them, you can number your offspring. Well, his offspring in that promise was believers in Christ. And Abraham literally won't be able to number them, neither will you. We will get there one day, and we will be in shock and awe at the number of people that Christ redeemed, and we'll give him praise for that. Well, now we come to chapter 8. That's, the, that's your, that's your uh, Cliff Notes catch-up of the chapters. Uh, and in chapter 8, probably the, the, one, the, the last thing you expect to see as you open chapter 8 is what? what? What do you see first in the chapter? Silence. Not explosions, not you know special silence. All of a sudden, it's quiet in heaven, and it's quiet for about a half an hour. It says, a half an hour. That that might seem like if you're waiting for something, that sounds like a long time. You know, at Christmas time, if we made our kids wait half an hour after they got up to open a, a present, they would be bouncing off walls. Well, here you have half an hour of silence in heaven, and I think this is this is intended to build up the anticipation. It's intended to kind of, what's going on? Something big is about to happen. It got, you know, what's the old saying? It, it's, it's quiet in here. It's too quiet. We joked about it this morning. That's kind of the picture that's going on here in Revelation 8. You have a dramatic pause. This is the, you know, all kinds of proverb, proverbial sayings come to mind. You know, the calm before the storm of, of judgment. Um, you ever see a scary movie? I know nobody else, nobody here ever watches scary movies. But if you had, hypothetically speaking, seen a scary movie, you know, what happens in movies these days? You have scary music playing. And then all of a sudden it stops. Like, and it makes it scarier. All of a sudden it's quiet. It goes deathly quiet. And you're more scared than you were when the scary music was going because you know something is about to happen. Well, that's, 
That's what's going here. The silence builds up the suspense. The silence in heaven should grab our attention because it's, it's telling us God's about to do something here in this, in this vision. God's going to teach us something about his ways of doing things in this world of sin and misery, the way that he judges the wicked and delivers his persecuted people. That's what's about to happen. Now, you know, think about this. We read of seven angels early in this chapter, and each one is given what? Each one is given a trumpet, uh, and the judgments of God are what is portended by those trumpets. Uh, but before we even hear a trumpet blast, like you might think, okay, there's silence, then there's going to be a trumpet blast, but it's not the first thing you hear. In a, in a way of speaking, what's the first thing you actually hear, so to speak, in the text? Not the trumpets, not the thunder, not the lightning, not the earthquake. The prayers of the saints. He doesn't tell us what they're praying, but that was back in chapter 6. The prayers of the saints. And in a lot of ways, I think this is the theme of the whole chapter. We we might get caught up in the things from, from verses 6 to 13, and I, I, I will apologize ahead of time if I'm, if I, for telling you I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to break down what each of those little things mean, each, you know, the, what the star is, what wormwood is. I'm not going to go into all that because I don't think that's the point. Not that it's unimportant. I think the point is the prayers of the saints and what God does uh, because of and, and through them. The prayers of the saints, I think, are the main focus of the chapter. And we're going to see at least three things from our text this morning. First, we're going to see the people of prayer. The people of prayer. The second thing we're going to see is the purification of prayer. And lastly, uh, but not least, the power of prayer. So the people of prayer, the purification of prayer, and lastly, the power of prayer. So the first thing we're supposed to take note of here, I think, is the people of prayer. We're told uh, twice in verses 3 and 4 of, quote, the prayers of all the saints, verse 3, or just the prayers of the saints in verse Four, this is, I think, something we're supposed to focus our attention on. And you've got that half-hour silence in, he- in heaven, this pause in the throne room of heaven, and before any of the angels make a peep, before any of them blow their, their trumpet, their horn, uh, what, what are we told of? A much more humble sound, that of the prayers of, of God's people. And who are these people that John identifies as praying? Whose prayers are being offered here with the incense uh, before God. What does John call them? He calls them twice saints. Saints. I asked the kids last night, uh, we were reading the passage, and I said, you know, what's a saint? And, you know, they, they don't want to be wrong, so they're afraid to give an answer sometimes. But, you know, I said, sometimes we use the word as, you know, so-and-so is a real saint. They're a really, they're a really holy person. They're really, they're really a good person. Uh, if you grew up uh, Roman Catholic, uh, you have a totally different view of what a saint, or you did have a different view of what a saint would be. The, what is a saint? A saint, the word means holy one. It has the idea of somebody being set apart unto God. And so there is, a, there is an ethical dimension to that. There's a reason that you're called a saint, and it's mostly because you're holy in Christ, but it also has uh, some, some direction toward the, the way that you live. So what is John saying? Does John say that it's just the prayers of the really, really, really super holy people that's in view here? Is it the super Christians? Is it their prayers only and not, not the lesser ones like us whose prayers are being offered here? No, it's not just the super Christians. It's not, not the Roman Catholic idea of a saint, you know, people who have done miracles and get voted in and all these things. It's, it's Christians. The scriptural view of the word saint is it's a reference to all believers in Christ, all those who are redeemed by the blood 
of Jesus Christ. The scripture uses the word saint to refer to every believer. If you're a believer in Christ, if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Christ alone to save you from sin and death, then you are a saint. You know, very often uh, in the pulpit, preachers like me will, will say brothers and sisters and things like that. From time to time, I should change it up and call you saints just to remind you of what you are in Christ. Because Paul does it. Paul, Paul wrote to the Ephesian church uh, and, and says this in Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, here it is, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Is, is Paul writing a letter to the church in Ephesus and, and really only intending it to be read to and by just the extra holy people in the church? How would you, who would make that call? Would the pastor and the elders have to make that decision? Oh, you know, so and so, okay, you're a super holy saint. You, this isn't really for you. You know, don't, no, Paul's writing to the whole church. And he calls every Christian a saint. And he wasn't just addressing the extra holy people. In fact, he was addressing this, this epistle, this letter to, to the Ephesians, to the entire church. And if you read the church, who does he include in that? Now, it depends what your view of kids are, but he, 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 he writes directly to the children in, in Ephesians 6, verse 1. Even children in Christ are saints. There's no age limit on that. Also, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. Now, if you could think of a church that didn't seem terribly holy in your mind in Scripture, it might be the, the church in Corinth. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1, 2? He says, to the church of God, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, it's the same kind of word, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So the church is comprised of all those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. And notice what he says there, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our, Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. All those in every place who call upon the name of Christ are saints in Christ. So if you're a believer this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, you are a saint. And if you're a saint through faith in Jesus Christ, it's your prayers and mine that are in view here in Revelation chapter 8. The prayers of, what does he say, all the saints. Not just some, not just the saints in general, all the saints. Your prayers, my prayers, as imperfect, to say the least, as they are, matter to God. And God is pleased to both answer them and use them in the accomplishment of his will and his purposes in this world. That's, that's what this chapter is telling us. Prayer is important. Your prayers, as, as stumbling and bumbling as our prayers may be, uh, matter to God and he is pleased to answer them. And that brings us to the second point, the purification of prayer. What do I mean by that? I, I'm not saying, this, my point this morning is not that prayer has some purifying effect on us, although it is a means of grace and God certainly uses his means of grace, the word of God and prayer to build us up in the faith and to sanctify us in Christ. But no, the, the text that we're reading this morning in chapter 8 points us, I think, to the way that God purifies our prayers and makes them acceptable and presentable to himself that he might hear an answer. It's one thing to be a person who prays, but have you ever asked yourself, maybe you have, maybe not in so many words, why should God listen to you? I've asked that a thousand times. 
It's almost like every time I pray, I think, what am I doing? Why should God listen to me? What right do I have? What right do you have to be heard by the Almighty God of all the universe, the Creator of heaven of the heavens and the earth? Why should an infinitely holy God bother to listen to, much less answer, the prayers of sinful human beings? And not not just sinful human beings, but sinful human beings whose prayers themselves are imperfect at best and often tainted by sin and selfishness. Do you ever pray selfishly? I do. I think we all do. No, we don't do that. We, We pray for things. We don't pray according to the Lord's Prayer for God's glory first, for His kingdom, for His will. We pray for what we want. And yet God is still pleased to hear and answer. And how, how is that? How can a holy God hear and answer the prayers of sinful people, even sinful saints like us? Well, I think the text tells us in, 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 in this picture, three times in our text, in chapter 8, uh, John mentions an altar or a golden altar, verses 3, 4, and 5. Three verses in a row, when he mentions the prayers of the saints, what's he mention, what does he mention right alongside of it? The altar. What is what is an altar? What happens at an altar in the scriptures? The altar is a place of sacrifice. We read of that in Second Chronicles chapter seven, and that thousands and thousands of animals that Solomon sacrificed, and those were just a picture of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The, the altar is the place of sacrifice for sin, for atonement for sin. So I think what we're being shown here in kind of a graphic. Uh, way in this vision is that even our prayers are sanctified and made acceptable only through the sacrifice of Christ. He doesn't just sanctify you, he even sanctifies our prayers and makes them acceptable and answerable in him. You know, on our own, our prayers, even the very best prayers you ever pray on your best day, the best prayer you ever pray or ever will pray is sinful uh, and tainted with sin and selfishness. Every single one, every prayer, every time we pray in church, no matter how carefully we may prepare to pray, there's, it's never perfect. We never pray perfectly according to God's will. We never pray perfectly at all in this, in this life. None of us are worthy to be heard and answered by God on our own. None of, not a single one of us is worthy on our own to pray and be answered by God. So how does God hear and answer our prayers? Because He does. Well, the the Westminster Confession of Faith, there's a chapter in that, chapter 16, on good works, the good works of believers. I don't know if you've ever ever read it, but I highly recommend it to you. I find it very edifying because I'm weird and I'm a pastor. But but it, it talks about the good works of believers, and the good works of believers, just like your prayers and mine, are also tainted by sin and imperfections of many kinds and even of selfishness. But But the Confession of Faith tells us from Scripture that God is pleased to accept our good works. And how does he do that? How can God, who knows all and is infinitely holy, accept our tainted good works? It says this, it says, notwithstanding the persons of believers, that means you, being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, that's God, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. How does God accept your good works? Do you know God accepts your good works and even rewards them? 
Are they worthy in and of themselves of reward? No. But does God reward them? Yes. Does God reward obedience? Yes. Does obedience earn anything? No. How does God accept and reward your good works? Because he accepts them the same way he accepts you in Christ. It says he looks upon them in his Son. And in looking upon them in his Son, he is pleased to accept and reward them. Well, I think the same thing can be said of our prayers as is said of our good works in the confession of faith, that God looks upon or hears our prayers in his Son. And if I can borrow the words of the confession and aim it towards prayer, because he hears our prayers in his Son, he is pleased to hear and answer that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. He answers because he answers them in Christ, because he hears and accepts you in Christ. Without that, none of us would bother or dare to pray. We would be more than discouraged from praying. Outside of Christ, we have no right to pray and be heard by a holy God. But in Christ, you and I are, I I, I lose track of how many times the scriptures encourage us to pray. Through promises, God even commands us to pray. As if we need a little bit more of of a push in the back. He wants us to pray, he even commands us to pray. And we're even given the promise of being heard and receiving God's answer. You know, when you look at yourself and your sin, and we often do, uh, you might be discouraged from prayer. Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe you start to pray and you think, why bother? Why should I pray? Why would God bother listening to me? Well, if you look at yourself, you're going to get discouraged from prayer. But if you look to Christ, that's all the encouragement that you should need to pray. We have in Christ a great high priest who died to save you from your sins. And as we looked at last week in Hebrews 7.25, what does it say? He ever lives to intercede for us at the right hand of God. And so if you look at at your great high priest interceding for you at at God's right hand, you should at once be encouraged to pray. And not only that, you should be assured of being heard at the throne of grace. James Ramsey puts it well. He says, the prayers of the saints can ascend only as embodied in the intercessions of their great high priest and resting on the merits of his atoning sacrifice. This is the secret of their power. Christ's death and resurrection, the merits of his death and resurrection, that's why God hears and answers your prayers and mine. If you're in Christ by faith, even your prayers, even your worship, as imperfect as those things are, Uh, are purified and made acceptable in Christ. And that leads us to the third and final point, and that is the power of prayer. Notice that in our text in chapter 8, the judgments of God, they are coming in the answer to the prayers of his people. These are the answers to the prayers of the saints. That's, I think in a lot of ways, that's the primary message of this chapter. That God, you know, when you, when you read the previous chapters about that scroll, and we said that it's about the decrees of God, his purposeful plan for all things, maybe the last thing you thought that was going to get brought up was prayer after that. God's got his plan, he's going to execute it, and that's it, period, exclamation point, end of story. And that's that's true as far as it goes, but what's the saying? God not only ordains the ends, he ordains the means as well. You know, God wants to save and is going to save a mass of humanity that no man can count. But he's not going to do it immediately. And when I say immediately, I mean that in a technical way. He's not just going to reach down and 
you know, bingo, bango, bongo, and save. He uses the gospel. God could preach the gospel, to say the least, far better than I can, far better than you can, far better than any evangelist you can imagine. God does not need a preacher. God does not need me or you. But what has God ordained to be the means by which the gospel is made known? The preaching of the word by people, by people called to ministry and people called to evangelism. He uses us. He uses our words. He uses our prayers in the accomplishment of his purposes. That's, that's the primary message of this chapter, I believe. You know, many in our day, even recently in this last weekend, many people scoff in our day and mock prayer. You know, the act of violence down the hill in Poway yesterday, as awful as that was, uh, you know, many, many well-meaning Christians, uh, you know, put out on social media and elsewhere, praying. You know, that was my first response, praying. And, and some people react to that in a very mocking way. You know, very, very often these days, whenever there's a shooting and someone, whether it be a politician or someone else says, our thoughts and prayers are with you, someone will always say, well, that doesn't do anything. We need legislation. We need to outlaw guns because prayer, they don't think prayer does anything because they don't believe in God. What does this chapter tell you about the power of prayer? It's not useless, and God does answer, and God does big things in answer to the humble prayers of his people. So scoffers often ridicule God's people for turning to God in prayer uh, and seeing that as somehow being a fitting response to these kinds of things, but it is a fitting response to these kinds of things, and it, praying is more than you can anything else you can do. You can do other things, but those things are far lesser than prayer. In fact, what does James 5.16 say? I'll read the King James uh, rendition of that. It says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? Avails or availeth much. You know, I I often hear people say that uh, well-meaning pastors say uh, they describe answered prayer, you know, they'll say, well, nothing actually changes if God changes you. Well, you know, prayer doesn't change the decrees of God. If someone thinks that, then that's, that is wrong. But God uses your prayer in the accomplishment of his will. And he has foreordained from all eternity to do just that. Our prayers are also in that scroll, is half the point. And God uses them to accomplish his purposes. You know, do you, we must believe in the power of prayer. And why is that? Not because prayer is anything, but because we believe in the power of God. And his willingness to answer, when you say, I believe in the power of prayer, you're saying, I believe in God. And I believe God is willing and able to do all things. He's willing to hear and answer the prayers of his people. And so, do you believe that God answers prayer? Do you pray? That's the test, isn't it? I believe in prayer. If you ever ask me on the street, on the spot, you see me at the store, hey, pastor, do you believe in prayer? I'm not going to say no, but do I pray? Do you pray? That's the test. That's the indicator. And when you pray, do you expect God to hear your God, to hear an answer? Sometimes we're like those saints under the throne, not that we've been martyred. We say, how long? It doesn't seem like God's answering. And then there's a half an hour delay. Who knows what that's like in heaven? It doesn't feel like he's answering, but what happens? He answers, and he answers in a mighty way. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith... It is impossible to please him. Why? For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And what else? That he rewards those who seek him. Of course we believe God exists, right? We're not atheists. 
But do we really believe that God is the rewarder of those who seek him? And how do you seek God? Prayer. You seek God's face in prayer and he rewards it. You seek God's face in, face in obedience, in faith, and God rewards that as well. We, we should trust and must trust that God, our God that we believe in, that he rewards those who seek him. So if you believe in God, we should believe in prayer. We should believe in God who hears and answers the prayers of his people. And you know, you're, you're only really going to pray fervently if you do believe that God exists and rewards those who seek him. In other words, it takes faith to pray. Prayer is an act of faith, just like obedience is. And the one that by God's grace is willing uh, to pray uh, has to trust that God is willing to hear and answer and reward those who seek him. And the suffering, persecuted church here in this chapter is encouraged to pray. When God's people pray, what happens? The silence of verse 1 changes. And what do you see in verse 5? Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake, it, it, it kind of draws your mind back to Exodus and the giving of the law. The mountain was shaking, there was lightning, there was an earthquake. The people were afraid to come near lest they die. That's the same picture is going on here. God is at work. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The, the judgments of God spoken of in the last six or so verses of this chapter uh, fall upon this world in response to the prayers of God's people. When you read all those things in verses 6 to 13, those things, we are to view them as two things. They are what was written on that scroll uh, that, that, that the Lamb of God opened, but they're also the answers to the prayers of God's people. Brings to mind a quote from uh, the old Puritan writer William Gurnall. He has a book called The Christian in Complete Armor. If you've ever looked at it or read it or read part of it, it's, a, uh, it's an extended, you know, Puritans are never brief. Uh, And this book is about 1,200 pages long, and it's a 1,200-page exposition of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Talk about filler, you know. No, there's no filler in it, but it's it's a very long book about a very short passage, and that's the passage on the armor of God, so the Christian in complete armor. And what the Puritans often did was they did this thing that we don't do uh, very often. They thought through, they thought about things in depth. They thought about the implications of what the things that the Bible says and tried to draw those things out. Well, he has in that section, that 1,200-page book, if you, if you know the passage in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God, uh, there's a section towards the end in verses 18 to 20 where Paul talks about prayer, about prayer in relation to the armor of God, and, and Gurnall spends about 300 pages of that book on prayer in that exposition about the armor of God. And in that section, Gurnall actually warns the wicked in his book not to get the saints engaged in prayer. You get the church praying, you're going to get in trouble, is what he's saying. That's not the words he used. Uh, he says, take heed, take heed that by your implacable hatred to the truth and the church of God, you do not engage her prayers against you. Now, you keep, you keep harming the church, you're going to get them praying, and you're not going to like the results. And he goes as far as to say this. I think this is a quote from someone else, but I don't know who it was. He says, The prayers of the saints are more to be feared than an army of 20,000 men in the field. I don't know about you, but if I saw an army of 12,000 men in a field, I'd be much more alarmed or impressed than I would a small group of people in a church somewhere praying. 
You know, when there's a small group, a, a church, and doesn't get much smaller than us, but, you know, if we were to have a prayer meeting here this morning, uh, or, you know, we have one every Friday morning, you know, the news doesn't usually show up at our office at 7 o'clock on Friday. We don't have cameras in our faces saying, look, my goodness, look at this. The power of God at work, is, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it to us, right? Not normally, not, not, at least not to me. And yet, what is Grinnell? Grinnell's right. They should be more afraid of a small church praying uh, than they would be uh, if, if, uh, of an army of 20,000 men, an armed group of men in a field of 20,000. Prayer is stronger than that. Prayer is more to be feared by the wicked than that. That's the message of Revelation chapter 8. That's the message to the wicked and the unrepentant. Those who are the enemies of the cross of Christ and persecute the church should be more afraid of the church praying than they would be of an army. And so do you believe in the power of prayer? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I think you do, and you certainly should. You should pray. You should pray in faith, trusting that your Heavenly Father has justified you in Christ and is even now sanctifying you and your prayers in Christ. And because of that, he's pleased to hear and answer the prayers of his people. As imperfect as we are in this life, as imperfect as your prayers and mine are in this life, he still he accepts your prayers and hears and answers why. Because of he, he accepts them in Christ. And you engage the omnipotence of God on your behalf, in the behalf of his people when you, when you pray. And he will answer powerfully from heaven. He will judge the wicked. He will deliver his people in his time. That's what you see in the, those scary parts of the vision in chapter 8, the last part of the chapter, all those things being thrown to the earth and death and destruction. It's a picture of the power of God standing up for his people. That's what that chapter is about. That's what those parts of the vision is about. That God's people pray, God hears and answers, the angels blow their trumpets, and God's judgments fall on the wicked. Your, your prayer life and my prayer life may very often feel like a half an hour of silence, but it brings the thunder and the earthquake in God's time. And so let us be a people of prayer. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you once again for the encouragement to prayer, Lord. You know how weak we are. You know how, how discouraged, how easily discouraged we can be from praying. You know how impatient we are in prayer that we don't persevere and keep on asking and seeking and knocking. We aren't like that persistent widow who, who went to the judge's house and in the middle of the night and woke him up. And, and though he neither feared God nor man, he gave in to the widow's requests so she wouldn't wear him out. And yet, Lord, we know that you are no unjust judge. You are the, the, the God of, of, of our salvation. You have given us all things. You are the maker of heaven and earth, and you don't change. And you give good gifts to those who hear, those who, who ask you uh, in prayer. And so we ask that you would give us grace to trust you in that, that we would persevere in prayer, that we would meet to pray. We would we'd pray always. We pray in all things, giving thanks to you through Jesus Christ. Uh, and Lord, we pray that you would uh, be pleased to give us eyes to see your answers. Give us the faith to trust in your answer, that your answer will come in due time, and that we are really engaging the, the omnipotence of an almighty God when we pray, because you accept and hear and answer our prayers in Christ, and we thank you for that. Thank you that we have a great high priest who ever lives at your right hand interceding for us so that we can be saved to the uttermost. And you've even given us your spirit who also intercedes for us with groanings, that can't be uttered. Lord, thank you for prayer. Thank you for your condescension and kindness to us that you are pleased because of your grace to hear and to answer the prayers of your people. Make us a praying church. Make us 
a house of prayer for all the nations, and glorify the name of Christ, even through us and through our weak prayers. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.